The reading today is Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, and chapter 3, 7 to 22, and can be found on page 1,234 in the Red Bibles. Revelation 2, starting at verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And continuing from chapter 3, from verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door, that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have, so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar on the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So, because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, so that you can become rich, and white clothes to wear, so that you can cover your shameful nakedness, and solve to put on your eyes, so that you can see. Those whom, whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. 
If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person, and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Yeah, please do take a seat. You might find it helpful to have Revelation 2 and 3 in front of you as we look at all seven of these letters or messages to these seven churches uh, this morning. Uh, As we begin, uh, a couple of weeks ago on a Friday evening, we sat down to watch um, Kenneth Branagh in uh, Henry V. Uh, That's the sort of thing you do when you live with an English teacher. That's a fun Friday night. Uh, And it it was a good time. It was a good time. I don't know if you know the play, but uh, Henry has to lead his troops in battle, in a war in in France. And it doesn't go that well in lots of ways. Uh, They find it really hard at various points. And they're battle-worn, they're weary, they're burdened at various stages. And, And Henry, as their leader, has to sort of rally them and give them a vision and an inspiration to help them keep going, keep fighting in these tough times. And some of Shakespeare's most famous lines are in the mouth of Henry as he's encouraging his troops to keep going, once more unto the breach, dear friends, once more. Or uh, in his famous speech in in Act 4, before the Battle of Agincourt, he he says uh, he's trying to convince them that by fighting this day, they'll win great glory. And even though there's only a few of them left, it just means their glory will be so much greater because there's more of it to go around between that small number. And he says, we few, we happy few, we band of brothers. You know, visionary, inspiring leader with, with great words to keep his men going in battle. Well, here in Revelation 2 and 3, what we have is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ, delivering an inspiring set of messages for his people, his churches, Uh, things that are uh, there to help them keep going through the struggle that they are facing following him. And we're going to look at these seven. Uh, They're sometimes called the letters. Some people say maybe they should be called the messages to the churches. They're not strictly speaking letters. They look a little bit more like the kind of oracles you would get in the Old Testament where it says, this is what the Lord says. These are the words of the Lord. Uh, Well, these are the words of is how each of them begins. So maybe they're messages. I might call them letters. I might call them messages. Forgive me if I'm a bit inconsistent. It's fine. Uh, You can call them either of those things if you'd like. Uh, They follow a a kind of set structure, which as we heard the three of them read, you might have picked up. Um, It starts each one to the angel of the church in such a place, write this. And the image here is Jesus, the great enthroned king of the universe we saw last week in chapter 1. Uh, and in his courtroom, he has all sorts of messengers, these angels, that he's able to send as he wishes. And you go to that church, and you go to that church, and you go to that church. And so he sends seven angels out, one to each church, with a message. And the message begins with a description of Jesus, drawn from the vision in chapter 1 that we saw last week. And then there's a section where Jesus tells them about what he knows about what's happening in their situation. I know. And that's the kind of report card thing that Pete was taking us through. Here's what you're doing well. Here's what's going wrong. And then there's two bits at the end, and they kind of flip over halfway around, but don't worry too much about that. Uh, 
there's a, there's a line that's said to each church, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And then there's a reward or a promise to the one who overcomes, to the one who is victorious, who stays faithful to Jesus. So all the messages have that, that structure. And they are written to seven churches in Asia Minor, uh, modern-day Turkey. Uh, Pete showed us this map. And I think that's helpful right away. Um, people have debated over Revelation for years and years uh, about its meaning and all the rest of it. But I think, first of all, we need to just pause and say, these were seven real churches in the first century who had seven messages written to them way back in sort of AD 90 or whatever it was when it was written. And the messages make sense in that context because as you dig into some of the details, they're clearly specifically for a, a given place. So, for example, Pergamum has a basalt mine, uh, uh, black rocks that they can mine out of a, a hill nearby. And so they have loads of black rock in Pergamum. They've got it everywhere. It's free and it's cheap and easy to, to get hold of this black rock. But they don't have white stone. So if they want white stones, they need to buy it in. They need to import it. So white stone is rare and expensive in Pergamum. Well, when you look at the reward for the church in Pergamum to those who overcome, it's a white stone. See, it makes sense if you know a little bit about the region. Or, or take another one. I, I found this quite uh, funny. I suppose it wasn't funny for the people there at the time. But uh, Sardis, um, 500 years, in the previous 500 years to when Revelation was written, it was twice invaded and conquered by an invading army. And both times what happened was, the reason they found it so easy to get in is the people on guard duty were sleeping. And so in chapter 3, verse 2, when Jesus says to the church, wake up. That has a particular sort of resonance in Sardis, you know. They get what he's saying because they know what happens when you're sleeping on the job. Well, there you go. That's uh, seven real churches in the first century. But as well as seven real churches, we, we also have to deal with the fact that the number seven has a special meaning. John in Revelation uses numbers in a very specific way. And seven is the number of completeness in the Bible. And so as well as being seven actual churches, I think John is, uh, Jesus is saying these seven are a good representative sample of what the complete church experience is. If you uh, hear these seven messages to these churches, you'll get what church is all about, what it's going to be like following Jesus. Uh, and that repeated phrase is interesting. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to, well, not to, to your church, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You've got to listen to all seven. And if you listen to all seven, you get a kind of overview, a snapshot of the Christian life following Jesus. And that's what we're going to do today. We are looking at all seven. Sometimes churches will spend seven weeks doing this. We're going to try and do it in one week, which means inevitably we're going to skim over some details. We won't necessarily deal with every single verse or anything like that. Uh, but hopefully we get that broad overview, that snapshot of what it's like. And we're going to look at what it's like in church. We're going to take a look at the church. And then we're going to take a look at Jesus. So first, we hear from these seven letters that church is about saints, sinners, and strugglers. That's what church is all about. Saints, sinners, and strugglers. Uh, they're saints because these are written to the church. To the angel of the church in, is how each one begins. And the word church, ecclesia, is the, the called and gathered people of God. 
It's not written to everyone in the world. It's, it's written to those that God has called out to be his holy people. And the Bible elsewhere uses the word saints to describe that group of people. This is written to Christians. Some have become wayward and drifted away from Jesus. Some are doing a better job of holding on to him. But nonetheless, it's written to saints. But just because they're saints doesn't mean life is perfect or easy. Uh, They have to wrestle with sin inside the church. And they all struggle. Even the ones who are being faithful are finding life a real difficult struggle. There are two kinds of pressures. There's pressures inside and pressures outside. And the pressures inside the church, as you read through the seven messages, have to do mostly with false teaching. We, are, we heard in the letter to Ephesus in verse 6 about the Nicolaitans. And as you read through, you find other people who are accused of false teaching. Uh, there are those who hold to the teaching of Balaam in verse 14 of chapter 2. In verse 20, they identify an individual who is uh, called the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. Uh, but all these different people, we, we don't quite know who they are and exactly what they're doing. Uh, But we have a few hints and clues. Uh, Jezebel and Balaam are characters from the Old Testament who encourage God's people to turn away from him and to worship other gods. And the way they do that is usually by enticing them, either through sexual immorality or idolatry and idol feasts. Uh, Balaam does it for money. Some people think the Nicolaitans may be this group of kind of overbearing church leaders who are kind of using their power corruptly. And so as we go go through, we get hints that this false teaching really is about drawing people away from God, using the tools of sex, money, and power. And actually, as you spell it out like that, it, it might have been true then, but isn't it just relevant in the same way today? It turns out the temptations, the things that draw people away from Jesus, are every bit the same in the 21st century as they were in the 1st century. And it's easy when you look around at the church and when you see messy issues in the church, when you see problems in the church, whether it's the the sort of prosperity preachers who fly around on their jumbo jets and you think, oh, that's really giving Christianity a bad name. Whether it's news articles that break in the press and that still seem to come around with alarming frequency. Normally, aren't they around sex, money or power at some level? And I think it's easy to read those things and think, oh, how could anybody be fooled? But can I just say, when I was a student, I went to Christian Union and church meetings, and I can think of four different individuals who came and preached to us, and I sat there lapping up what they said, and in the last five years, each and every one of those four has become discredited, had to be moved out of ministry, has been exposed as a false teacher, and it was always connected in one way or another with sex, money, or power. It is something the church has to be on constant guard. It's a pressure always at work within. But as well as that pressure within, there's a pressure outside. So in in Smyrna, for example, uh, the devil is testing them and persecuting them. Uh, They're suffering in verse 10 of chapter 2. They might even have to be faithful to the point of death. In Pergamum, there's Antipas, a Christian who has been put to death. In other churches, Philadelphia, they feel so weak in a world around them that is just pressing in on them all the time. There are struggles outside. There are struggles 
inside. It is full of pressure and persecution. And sometimes people think the Roman Empire, well, wasn't that a special time when everyone was getting thrown to the lions? Actually, when you look at the history of it, occasionally that happened. But life in the Roman Empire wasn't always like that. Persecution was often local and just for a small time. Uh, It's actually quite much the same that Christians have to face in this country and around the world much of the time. This is not an unusual or particularly strange period that has been written about. The pressures within and the pressures outside are kind of always relevant for God's people. And so how do we respond to those pressures that come to us? Well, there are three bad responses that we see in these seven churches. Uh, The first uh, bad response is in the church in Ephesus. Verse 4, I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. All the pressure and the struggling has, has made these Christians put their walls up. They've become super defensive, barriers everywhere. They've become very hard and cold and loveless. That's one bad response, to become loveless in the face of this struggle. For the church in Sardis, verse th- uh, chapter 3, verse 2, wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Uh, in the face of a brutal struggle, Christians in Sardis have become lazy. Just doing the bare minimum to put on a show of following Jesus, but Really, they can't be bothered to do it properly. And then Laodicea, the final church which we heard read, they've become lukewarm. In the face of a struggle, they've decided to become so like the world around them that nobody can tell any different. Loveless, lazy, lukewarm. Again, don't you feel the pull of those three? I do. When I find it hard following Jesus, I know how quick I am to become cold and hard, either to Jesus or to other people. I know how easy it is to say, well, I'll just do the bare minimum. I know how easy it is to just become not very different from anyone else around me. These are constant pressures for Christians. They tug at us all the time. These seven letters give us a realistic experience of what it is to follow Jesus. It will be a brutal struggle. Have you got that? You don't expect it to be different for you, do you? It was like that in the first century. We should expect it to be like that in the 21st. But but they also warn us about these three bad responses. I guess if we're honest with ourselves, quite a few of us sitting here will identify one or more of those and say, yeah, I can see myself drifting into that. I know I'm tempted to become like that when I'm struggling, when I'm under pressure, when I'm finding it hard. But these seven letters don't just describe the brutal struggle. They give us a resource, the most precious and wonderful resource of all that we need to go through that struggle without becoming loveless, lazy, and lukewarm. They give us an antidote. They give us a beautiful saviour to look at as well. That's our second point. Jesus, supreme, sovereign, sufficient. Each of the seven messages begins with a description of Jesus drawn from uh, chapter one. But the, the wonderful thing is each description is directly suited to what that church is going through. 
Okay, so let me give a couple of examples. Smyrna, chapter 2, verse 8. It says, these are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again, majoring on Jesus' victory over death. Why? Because Jesus tells the Christians in Smyrna, you're going to face persecution in verse 10, and it might even need to go all the way to the point of death. What do Christians in that position need to know? They need to know that Jesus has conquered death. So that's why it begins by reminding them, I died and I came alive again. I've beaten death. That's what you need to know, Christians in Smyrna. What about the church in Sardis in chapter 3? Chapter 3, verse 4, it says there are a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes, which tells us that most of the church in Sardis has soiled their clothes, a metaphor for becoming impure, unclean, living in sin. Well, how does Jesus introduce himself to that church? These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits, probably the sevenfold spirit, the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the one who has the spirit and who can give it to his church, who can cleanse them of their sin and impurity. That's what a Christian who's messed up needs to know about Jesus, right? Needs to know that Jesus has the power to wash them clean. Well, you could work through each one for yourself. I've just chosen a couple of examples there. But, but the point that's been made here is that Jesus is completely sufficient. Whatever the church happens to be going through, Jesus, the glorious Jesus, has the resources they need to overcome. So if last week we got the overwhelming vision that Jack took us through, where there weren't even words for it, it all came at once and they had to fall on their knees, these seven churches just give us one angle. For each one, one angle on that vision. And it's the exact angle that that church needs. And what's building up is this picture that Jesus is enough. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, whatever you're going through right now, Jesus is sufficient. And that means that Jesus' repeated word, the thing he says to every church, he says, I know. I know. I know what's going on for you. He says it to every church. And that's also precious. Because when Jesus says, I am sufficient for you, I am what you need, uh, that's encouraging. But it's only really encouraging if, if the person who makes that promise actually understands what it is you're going through. So, for example, if, you're like, if you were there going... Oh, I'm having real trouble doing DIY in my home. And I said, don't worry, I'll come and help. That is, not a good, that is not a good promise for you, right? I know nothing about DIY, okay? And it become very quickly apparent that I know nothing about DIY. And all of a sudden, you'll be like, ah, that wasn't all that useful then. So when Jesus is making the promise that he is enough for what they need, it's vital that he also knows what it is they're going through. It makes his promise that much more precious. I know what you're going through. Trust me, I am enough for you to overcome this. If you cling to me, I am enough. Not only is the glorious Jesus enough, uh, the gracious Jesus can provide. Each message has a, a reward or a promise attached to the end, to the one who is victorious. Uh, we don't have time to look at them all. I'll just take one Example, the church in Philadelphia in chapter 3. 
verse 12, to the one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Now, Philadelphia was a region that was racked with earthquakes. Buildings would fall down regularly. It felt very fragile and unstable, difficult to build anything that would last. And the church in Philadelphia, it even says here, feels weak. They're not sure they're going to last. They feel so fragile. So what a promise from Jesus. I will make you a pillar. I will make you secure forever. What a precious promise to a church in that situation. Again, each reward tailored to each church. It's exactly what they need to hear. Okay, so where does this leave us? Uh, Church is going to be a brutal struggle. There's a danger that we're going to respond in a way that is either loveless or lazy or lukewarm. The antidote to that, though, is to to recognize that in Jesus we have a supreme, sufficient Savior. So then what are we to do? There are two commands in these letters. Every church gets at least one of these. Some of them get both. Either repent or hold on. And what both those commands have in common is it's saying to the church, whatever you do, stick close to Jesus. Stick close to this Jesus who is enough, who is sufficient to meet our needs, whatever the situation Now, here's the challenging question. Do you believe that Jesus is sufficient to meet your needs in any and every situation? I'll be honest, I struggle to believe that at times. And do you know what the problem is when I'm struggling to believe that? My view of Jesus is too small. The Jesus in my mind, the Jesus that I'm thinking of, is not the Jesus we saw last week. The all-glorious, all-supreme Jesus that John saw. And so what the church needs to keep on going, to hold on in those brutal struggles, is an enormous vision of a glorious and gracious Jesus. The kind of Jesus that John saw in chapter 1. We need a bigger vision. Well, how do we get that bigger vision? Well, here are just a few practical tips. What we need to do is have our hearts captivated by Jesus' beauty and glory, our minds filled with his loveliness and wonder. Uh, We need to see him bigger and bigger and bigger. Well, uh, God has given us resources to help us do just that. The church has called some of these the ordinary means of grace. That's the church, Bible, and prayer. Why are they called the ordinary means of grace? They are the places where Jesus promises to meet his people. He says, if you open my word, my spirit will work within you through that word. You will meet me in that word. When you gather with my people for church, I will be there by the spirit. When you come to pray, you draw near the throne of grace by the power of the Holy Spirit. These are the places that Jesus has promised his people his grace will be. And you've probably sat in a number of sermons or Bible studies down the years where people say, read your Bible, pray, go to church as applications. But I think sometimes we forget the why. Why are they good things to do? We don't just do them to tick them off a checklist. That would have been what the church in Ephesus did. We do these things because there Jesus promises to meet us and expand our vision of him. 
There, Jesus promises to meet us and fill our hearts with his beauty. There, Jesus promises to captivate us with his glory and his grace. When you open your Bible in the morning, when you come to church on a Sunday, don't just do it because it's the next task on your list. Do it asking God, expecting of God that he will give you a bigger vision of Jesus because that is what you need when life is brutal. You need to be able to look to him and say, this situation's hard. It's really tough. But if he's that big, I trust he can get me through it. I've called those the ordinary means of grace because they apply to all Christians everywhere and God has promised to be there. But there are other means of grace and and these aren't for everybody. It depends who you are. It depends how you're wired as an individual. Some people, listening to Christian music is what fills their heart and their mind with the grace and goodness of Jesus. For some people, there's a particular podcast or a YouTube channel or or a, a book group that they're a part of that really captivates them with Jesus. Whoever you are, you, you will know yourself, hopefully, and you will know that experience of being gripped by the glory and grace of Jesus. Whatever that is for you, hold on to it. And if you've wandered away and stopped doing that thing, and if you've found your heart growing loveless or yourself becoming lazy, or recognize lukewarmness, turn back and start doing it again. Repent. That's what repenting means. Whatever it is, grasp it jealously. Let your heart be captivated by Jesus. Let your mind be filled with knowledge of his love. May you be gripped by the joy of knowing him. Because the Bible says the joy of the Lord is your strength. It is the strength you're going to need to follow Jesus. Because the the complete church experience will always be a struggle. But we have been provided with an all-sufficient saviour.